Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September the 30th, 2021. And this is episode 2,966 of the Survival Podcast. And it is the last day of the third quarter of the year. Tomorrow starts Q4. Don't worry, I'll save the uh, TikTok ass-kicking for tomorrow's first official episode of Outback with Jack. We're going to a Friday show that will be done in a live stream. I have some really interesting topics set out aside for you guys tomorrow. My plan going forward is to be doing the Friday shows very early in the morning via live stream. They'll be uh, pretty nuts and bolts, like uh, old school podcasts like I used to do when I first started before I had sponsors or anything like that. They'll pretty much start on, on topic and end on topic. Um, I'll probably present for about 30 minutes on the items that I have uh, bullet-pointed for you and then take up to about 30 minutes of interaction with the audience, at which time I'll sign off. And then that live stream will go out as it is with no real editing whatsoever um, as the audio podcast for Friday afternoon. So it's kind of the new new schedule as we continue to revamp things and try to make them fresh and different and also try to take some damn pressure off me. I think I was doing too much doing four to five Miyagi mornings plus four to five podcasts a week. It was it was really wearing me out, and it, it's like I, I want to do the best work I can for you guys, and that's why I'm making these changes. Yes, it will make my life easier, but hopefully it will make my content for you better. Um, the Outback with Jacks are going to be early morning things, guys. I'm going to probably try – my target start time is 0745. That's about the time my wife leaves. And my target end time is 0845. That's about the time my wife gets back with the kiddos uh, every morning uh, so that they can do their homeschool here and all. So it gives me that quiet time in the middle. Knock it out. Be done with it. And uh, so for some of you, that's going to be really early, right? That's central standard time. For you guys on the East Coast, that's 845. Uh, but Mountain, of course, is uh, 645 and uh if you want to catch it from the West Coast, it's 5.45 in the morning, quarter to 6. But some of you might be listening to it while you get ready to go to work or something. I don't know. It's up to you guys. Anyway, it's going to be cool. It's going to be uh, going to be a great format. So just a quick announcement there. Yes, Outback with Jack starts tomorrow. Uh, today I've got, of course, expert counsel for you. Dr. Ken Berry will be talking about normal variations in blood pressure throughout the day. Um, sometimes people get really worried their blood pressure goes up a bit or something like that. It's not really that big concern unless it's chronic. Ken will talk about that. Uh, we'll lead off with the two doctors here. Doc Bones is going to talk about the importance of a sick room for long-term medical preparations as well. Derek Bonpietro is going to talk about some various uh, engine issues with some swap-outs and things like that. A little different than last time, talking about a car that came with a supercharged motor. If it is uh, seen its last days, you don't want to rebuild it. Can you swap a motor into it that is a standard motor and some other... Interesting questions with engines. Tim, the toolman cook, will be doing a twofer. He's going to talk about how temperature affects propane storage and how to mitigate that if you need to. And uh, insulation of buildings and, and a couple other things, too, with kind of a random grab bag. Sean Mills is going to give us an update on the solar industry, including supply chain issues with the same thing. Uh, we haven't heard from Sean in a while, so this is a good one for him. I need questions for Sean, but guys, uh, all your solar and alternative energy questions, battery questions, Sean Mills is the man. 
Uh, John Pugliano is going to do a financial question lightning round. Right, so multiple questions, and he's still going to anchor it with a ham radio question at the end, and I think that's really cool. He's a great multitasker, and I'm going to cover today for you in my anchor segment a quote of the day. The past always looks better than it was. It's only pleasant because it isn't here. Finley Peter Dune, and I'm going to talk about remaining optimistic and getting things done in the present because I'm going to tell you the real problem with the past as far as it looking better when I get to my segment of the day. With that, let me remind you before I introduce our first question, we do have a contest running right now. You can win a trip fishing, which is, you know, a bad day fishing is better than a good day working. We all know that. But a day with Omar Cotter at Lucky the Irish God Service is not a bad day, period. I promise you. He has three captains guiding under him. So he has a total of four boats that he runs his service with. Luck of the Irish Guide Service. They specialize in white bass and stripers. Lake Tawakini, Lake Louisville, Lake Grapevine, all here in North Texas. If you need to travel, I don't think he's got really set a time limit on when you can get down here to take your trip. You can take up to three people with you. I guess if you win the trip and you're like in Washington State and you're not going to make it down here, you could sell the trip. Uh, the trip itself is worth $475. I'm not sure what the rod and reel combo are worth, but uh, six gill is a pretty high-end operation. So I'm going to say 150 bucks. So you're looking at like, what, $675 in value? And he's doing it when his YouTube channel, he's brand new to YouTube. When his YouTube channel hits 500, he's going to pick four people out of the 500 subs. That's at odds of 1 in 125. That's pretty good. I've fished with this guy for years. You want to, uh, you want to enter this because it's just stupid easy. Just go to YouTube, pull up his, his channel, which is Luck O the Irish Guide Service. There's a link in the write up and there's a link in the show notes today for you. Um, just click subscribe. That's it, and you could win. And I know a lot of times people don't enter contests because you don't think you're going to win. And, and when you're, you're like taking, doing a contest with like the Monopoly game at Albertson's Grocery Store or something, and your odds of winning are like one in six point two million, I understand. But one in one twenty-five, that's good odds. That's good odds that you could win. And you, I'll, I'll guarantee you one thing: you don't win if you don't play, and it doesn't cost anything. So uh, I'm really trying to help Omar get his. You know, channel off the ground, get him up to 500 bucks. He's been a good friend for a long time. So enter. If you enter and you don't even want it, give it back to me and I'll distribute it to somebody in the audience, right? Just go join Omar's YouTube channel today. With that, let's get into uh, our questions for the expert counsel. Uh, Dr. Ken Berry, and a quick announcement about Ken. Ken will be on with me on Tuesday. And we will be live streaming as well as putting the live stream out on the podcast. So we're going to be talking about a new docu-series that Ken has put together. Uh, it's a pretty big deal uh, on, on getting rid of type 2 diabetes, which has become a health scourge in our country. The proper human diet, his appearance at TSP's workshop this coming November and more. So Ken will be here Tuesday live and in the flesh. But right now he's going to talk to us about blood pressure. Ken, take it away. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. <clears throat> this is Dr. Ken Berry. I'm answering a question today for a listener about variability in the blood pressure readings. Uh, this person says that their, their blood pressure varies from 74 over 47 all the way up to 152 over 103, and it often varies widely within the same day. This person, 68 years old, six feet tall, weighs 160 pounds. That's very good numbers for a 68-year-old. Uh, very active, walk three to six miles a day, exercise multiple times a week. Uh, so 
there's several things at play here. First of all, let's talk about blood pressure variability. Your blood pressure changes from minute to minute based on hundreds of variables in your lifestyle, in your diet, uh, based on the hormone levels in your body, based on time of day, based on how well you slept last night. Blood pressure variability during the day is normal. It's, it's completely normal and physiologically healthy for your blood pressure to vary as much as 20 or 30, 40 points a day. That's not a cause for concern. The number you need to look for is what is your average blood pressure over the course of a week? And so I'm glad you got a blood pressure cuff at home. Always sit down and relax for 15 or 20 minutes in a calm, quiet environment. Don't check your blood pressure if you're in pain or if you just argued with your spouse or neighbor. Uh, Even if you didn't sleep well last night, your blood pressure is going to be high in any of those situations. So sit down, relax, calm, think calm thoughts, then check your blood pressure and write that down. You can do that twice a day. And then at the end of the week, you're going to average up all those numbers, and that's going to be the blood pressure number that you're really concerned about. Anytime anyone goes to the doctor, your blood pressure is always going to be highest or at least higher at the doctor's office. And many docs, when they see this high number, they're going to say, oh, I need to put you on a blood pressure pill. And that's completely inappropriate on the doctor's part. Every doctor should know about white coat hypertension. Everybody has uh, increased blood pressure at the doctor's office. That's never an indication to start taking a blood pressure pill. And so if you go to your doctor and they say, oh, your blood pressure is 150 over 90. We need to put you on a blood pressure pill. Then you're going to whip out the recordings that you've made at home and say, well, doc, my blood pressure at home averages 130 over 70. I I have white coat hypertension. Obviously, I'm here at the doctor's office. It's going to be higher. I would expect you to know that. And the doctor should know that. And if they don't know that, then you can teach your doctor something. And then finally, there's this thing that happens first thing in the morning called the dawn effect or the dawn phenomenon. Uh, When you wake up in the morning, your cortisol and your epinephrine elevate. Epinephrine is another word for adrenaline. And so you're going to have a higher blood pressure within the first hour after you wake up. And that's why I recommend most people wait at least one hour before they, after they wake up to check that first blood pressure reading in the morning. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. I have to say that I completely agree with that assessment. And I've seen huge variations in medical environments. There was a time that my wife was having some, uh, it was basically acid reflux, but it was, it felt like chest pain and she was very apprehensive. And, um, we went to a doctor and her blood pressure was way high for her. And as soon as the doctor said, this is not a heart problem, her blood pressure went down 30 points. The second she was told that her blood pressure went down 30 points, we, we respond. Now, there is a, uh, there's a fight or flight response and there's a reason that your blood pressure goes up under stress. If your blood pressure is higher than normal, I mean, high blood pressure is a thing. I'm not saying it's not. But if your blood pressure is higher than normal because of stress, your heart's working harder. So it's moving more blood faster. So it's putting more oxygen into your body quicker, right, so that you can run or you can fight. And it heightens your sense of awareness. So I'm not saying high blood pressure is good. I'm saying that there's a reason 
that it naturally fluctuates at different times, and we we can't judge it at those times accurately. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from the other doctor on the panel, Doc Bones, who we heard from yesterday, along with Nurse Amy. Uh, but here we're going to talk about sick rooms. And uh, this is something that we unfortunately may really need even more in the future given the state of the medical industry because of self-inflicted wounds. I mean, what's been done with COVID is pretty much the largest self-inflicted gunshot wound in the foot the humanity's ever given itself, and I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. So we might have to deal at some point along the way in this with a real pandemic or real outbreak, just an epidemic of an infectious disease or something. And if we're going to do that on our own, we need to, to practice isolation for certain things. Hi, I'm Joe Walton, MD of doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. In normal times, we have the luxury of modern medical facilities that can isolate a sick patient from healthy people. In a survival scenario, however, most organized medical care will no longer exist, and that's going to force the average citizen into the role of medic for his or her family or community. Although we may be thrown back to the 19th century medically by a disaster, we do have the benefit of knowledge about infections and hygiene, a lot more than our ancestors did. And knowing how contagious diseases are spread and how to sterilize supplies gives us a major advantage over those who came before us. Using this knowledge, it should be possible for a medically prepared person to put together a sick room or hospital tent that will minimize the chances of infectious disease running rampant throughout the community. We've spent a good deal of time on that topic in our latest book. The cornerstone of care is to deal effectively and humanely with the sick while keeping the healthy from becoming infected. In the face of a looming catastrophe, you must first make the decision to either stay in place or to get out of Dodge. If you're staying in place, you have to choose a room where the sick will be cared for, and that room should be as far away as possible from common areas like the kitchen. It should have good ventilation, should have light, and preferably should have a door or other physical barrier that separates it from the rest of the retreat. That's so important. If the wiser choice is to leave the area, shelter becomes an issue, but it can be addressed with tents, for example. Choose a tent as the sick room and place it on the periphery of the camp. Again, good ventilation is important to allow air circulation even in a tent. With sick rooms in a retreat or a camp, it's important to designate them well before a disaster occurs. For groups where a number of people are living together, procrastinating on this decision is going to cause somebody to lose their living space for the greater good. And this invariably breeds resentment at a time when everyone needs to pull together. Sometimes you're going to find that there isn't a spare room or tent to assign as a sick room. So if you only have a common area to deal with, Raise a makeshift barrier. Some plastic sheeting will do to separate the sick from the healthy. Even if you have a dedicated sick room, keep group members with injuries separate from those with infectious diseases. Although wounds will sometimes become infected, these tend not to be contagious like epidemic diseases are. A sick room in a retreat with air conditioning won't qualify as decent ventilation. And in this case, air ducts are actually more of a danger than a benefit because microbes passing through the air ducts in a sick room to other areas of the home or the retreat may represent a risk for transmission of disease. Cover the ducts with tape and keep windows or tent flaps open, except for particularly bad weather. 
You want to decrease the concentration of airborne microbes inside. That's very important to let them sort of go out into the atmosphere and not stay in this one tiny little room. Of course, in areas with lots of insects, some screening or netting may be necessary. Furnishings in the sick room should be minimal with a work surface, an exam area, medical equipment, bed spaces, not really much more. In mild weather, some of these beds can be outside if needed, as long as shade is provided with a canopy or at least insect threats are taken into consideration. Hard surfaces are preferable to fabric upholstery in almost all cases. Cloth is harder to clean, can harbor disease-causing organisms. That's something that makes common sense. Even bedding, honestly, might best be covered in plastic. The more areas that can be disinfected easily, well, the better. It's important to have a way to eliminate waste products of bedridden patients, even if it's just a five-gallon bucket with some bleach. Containers with lids should be made available to put used sick room items that need cleaning. A station should be set up near the entrance of the sick room or the hospital tent for caregivers' masks, gloves, gowns, aprons, other personal protection items that might be necessary, and have a good supply of these items. You'll also need a basin with water, soap, or other disinfectant, and thermometers should be available and dipped in alcohol. Many consider medical supplies to consist of gauze, tourniquets, and battle dressings, but you must also dedicate sets of sheets, towels, pillows, other items to be used in the sick room. Keep these items separate from the bedding, bathing, and eating materials of the healthy members of your family or group. All this seems like overkill to you, I know, but there never can be enough dedicated supplies for the sick. Make no mistake, you'll end up caring for more people than you planned for. You can bet that medical items will be expended much faster than you'd expect. Cleaning supplies should also be considered medical preparedness items. You're going to want to clean the sick room thoroughly on a daily basis. Hard surfaces should be regularly cleaned with soap and water or use other disinfectants such as a solution of one part bleach to nine parts water. Don't forget to disinfect the doorknobs, the tables, sinks, toilets, counters, even toys that children may be playing with. Wash bed sheets and towels frequently. Boil them if you have to. As these items may carry disease-causing organisms, wear gloves and always wash your hands after use. The same goes for plates, cups, things like that, and any equipment brought into the sick room should stay there. Limit patient access to the medic or medics in the groups only, and at least provide personal protection gear like face masks to any visitors that you do allow to see the sick person. One additional item that will be important for your sick room patients, give them a whistle or another noisemaker of some sort that will allow them to alert you when they need help. This will decrease anxiety, give them confidence that you'll know when they're in distress. The duties of a medic involve more than how to control bleeding or splint an orthopedic injury. Knowing how to put together an effective epidemic sick room will go a long way towards helping the sick get healthy and making sure the healthy stay that way. This is Joel MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Find out more about establishing a proper sick room and survival scenarios by checking out our new book, Alden's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. And hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits, books, and more at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So uh, next up, we have a question uh, for uh, Derek Bonpietro. Actually, a couple questions, one on an engine swap issue and some fuel issues, uh, along with a question on uh, power packs, and he was able to get them both into a single segment. So with that, hey, Derek, take it away. Happy Thursday, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the Affordable DC Power Supply Solution. This Thursday's a twofer. 
Let's get the show started. Reed writes in about an engine issue. Question, can I replace a supercharger engine with a non-supercharged engine? I am told that I need to replace the engine on my 2002 Nissan Frontier SC. I looked up the information saying 99-04 Nissan Frontier and Xterra have many interchangeable parts, including engines. But is there anything extra that I need to know to put another V6 engine without a supercharger into my vehicle? I'm sourcing the engine myself, but I will have a mechanic do the work, and I want to go in with as much info and additional parts as possible. Thanks for your help, Reed. All right, Reed, this is a tricky one. Your particular Nissan you're talking about, so back in the uh, 2000s, both of the Japanese Toyota and Nissan had supercharger options on their SUVs and pickups, their, their midsize stuff. Nissan was selling it from the factory with the supercharger, and unfortunately, the bad news is they are two different engines. I'm looking it up right now, so if we're talking a complete engine assembly, the part number is 10102-5S787 for the supercharger, and 10102-9Z287 for the non-supercharged. So, according to the online parts fiche, they are different engines. Now, here's the reality of the situation, is that... Nissan didn't make a completely different engine for this supercharged application in your particular vehicle. When I was working in the Toyota dealership back in the day, we would do a dealer-installed supercharger. So Toyota made the truck, sent it to the dealer. Customer said, yep, I like this Tacoma. I want to get the TRD supercharger on it. And so they would go through the whole financing and add it in. And the dealership would just basically send it out back. And one of us would slap on that supercharger and send it out the door. The engine is completely the original one, and the reality is it's just the supercharger, the belt drive, and all the little brackets and hardware that go with it. There's nothing changed internally in the engine. So in the Toyota application, it's literally the same engine block. There's not even a change in the fuel system. You use the stock fuel injectors, and I believe there was a different ECM or some type of tune that went with it, blah, 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 blah whatever. In the Nissan application, this is what I've come to believe is that they are the same exact block. That's 100% definite. So they are externally the same. The difference with supercharged forced induction is that it could potentially create spark knock a little easier because of the boost, and typically we're going to use a different style of piston, and I believe that's what Nissan did, is that the piston has some type of coating, and the top of the piston shape and potentially the compression ratio may be slightly different on the supercharged application. So... When they're making them, they might have different pistons than the non-supercharged engines. What does that mean for you? Well, it means tracking down an engine is a lot more difficult because they didn't make as many supercharged as non-supercharged. So that was a more expensive feature, so you're going to see production numbers going to be a lot lower than the regular engine. So if you're looking for this in a junkyard, it's just a numbers game, and you're not going to see as many of them. I'm actually trying to look at just maybe a rebuild kit for your particular engine, and I see one for the non-supercharged but I don't see one for the supercharged model. So it looks like the support after the fact is little to none for your particular application. So what are we going to do about that? You can try to track down a rebuild kit for your application and then have your guy pull the engine out, have him send it to a machine shop. They can rebuild it per OEM specifications for the supercharged application, and then you're good as new, 100%. No worries. If you decide not to go that more expensive route, just find a non-supercharged engine. Jam it in there. Now, what are the ramifications of this? It's not built for the boost of the supercharger, but it'll probably live. One thing for certain, you want to replace the knock sensors on the engine. 
So those are sensors that pick up the detonation caused by engine knock. Now that knock can be because the fuel is too low of an octane or the engine can't handle under load, under boost, the ignition timing and it's detonating. So I would definitely replace those just to make sure we have good knock sensors and that we don't have detonation issues. The other thing is I would just use good fuel. So don't think you're going to go to the discount fuel station and put some 87 that's been sitting around for, I don't know, four years and thinking that it's going to be happy. You're going to get a lot of detonation. So I would be committed to maybe running 89 or 91. I don't know what your owner's manual states, but I'm sure it's going to look for a premium fuel. Just make sure you run good fuel in it. You're probably not going to have an issue. Like I said, Toyota didn't even have a difference of the engine internally. It was just a bolt-on piece. So there's a solid chance you're going to be okay as long as you're not like putting junk fuel in it, hooking it up to a huge trailer, and then just going wide open throttle down the highway for long periods of time. You know, if you take care of it and you listen to it and you make sure it's running correctly, you're, you're probably going to be okay. All right, Reed, I hope that straightens you up. Good luck. All right, two for second question from Greg. What is your recommendation for a portable power bank to charge a laptop? Details. I am a current nursing student. Spent a lot of time on the go with my laptop. I'm looking for a portable power bank that I can recharge my laptop in between classes on campus. Looking for something that I can throw in my backpack would be nice to double as a vehicle jump pack as well. Thanks for all your help. All right, Greg. Now, I don't have a lot of personal use cases for this. I have an anchor power pack. I forget what size it is, but it's probably a little bit bigger than your hand. And I use that for USB charging and stuff like that. And I've been really satisfied with it for years and it's lost. Don't have no idea. Don't have an idea where it went. But up until that point of it going missing, I was really happy with the product line. I know Jack is happy with the Anchor product line. I believe those products show up in the item of the day a lot. So I think going with Anchor as far as a product brand, you can't go wrong. Now you're looking for two different applications, and there are some power packs that have both capabilities. But typically they're going to be very expensive or they're going to do either one of those tasks. Not really great. So I think, especially if we're trying to stay like under a hundred, 130 bucks, depending on the size, I would pick one or the other, which means you're probably going to stick with the laptop charging. Cause that sounds like that's your primary usage. You didn't mention in your email regarding what kind of laptop it is. So I would just make sure that whatever battery pack you're getting, that you have a compatible outlet that's going to work like that. So you know, are you using USB-C? Do you need an AC inverter built into the battery pack in order to use your AC wall charger? Or do you need some kind of oddball voltage? You know, is it going to be 12 or 20 volts, whatever it may be? And then obviously that goes with a specific size jack for your particular laptop. So there's a lot of questions in there, but just make sure whatever you're buying, it has that particular jack and voltage that's going to work with your application. I'd probably just go with Anchor, to tell you the truth. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. If you're going to go with a different brand, pick one, do some due diligence, make sure that it actually has the capacity that it's advertised for. Can't go wrong with Anchor, man. As far as vehicle jump starting, I'm sure the battery packs are out there that have that capability and it works great. But typically, you're not going to see one that does both of those really well. So obviously, you want to make sure it has the alligator clamps that are going to connect to the battery posts. But make sure if you go that route that it does still have the connection you need for your laptop. I hate to go and go through this entire process. You get it home and you can't even plug your laptop into it. So Anchor is my recommendation. Sorry I don't have anything more specific on that, but can't go wrong with that brand. As always, thank you guys very much for the questions. Love being on the show. Keep them coming. Take care.
And the uh, the council has been doing a real good job of stacking some questions together and giving multiple answers, and uh, that continues now with uh, Toolman Tim with some questions on propane, some questions on some insulation issues, and some other stuff. Hey guys, Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co, back to answer some more questions for the expert council. I've got three, I'm going to see if I can knock them all out this week, so let's dive right in. This one comes from Carrie, and he says, Hey, Tim, I've got an on-demand propane water heater on the south side of my house. For the most day, that tank, and therefore the gas line, is in direct sunlight. Do you think I should protect that line? If so, how would you go about it? Feel free to use this question in a video or post if you'd like. Thanks, Carrie. Okay, so um, basically, he sent me a picture, and it's a uh, tankless water heater with a propane tank and a hose, and it does have southern exposure, all-day uh, sunlight. The biggest thing with propane is the fact that they do not recommend it getting above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, a daytime temperature without including all the sun absorption, reflection, that sort of thing, can easily hit 120 degrees, especially down where Carrie lives. So I would honestly recommend getting some sort of shade around that. Now, all the digging I did basically said that... You don't need to worry about it rupturing because it does have a vent in it, so it will off-vent if it gets too hot. But you're wasting propane. And number two, it said anytime it exceeds 120 degrees, you're exposing it to micro-cracks. And over time, you can end up compromising the structural integrity of a propane tank. So I would honestly build something like a lean-to, you know, something that's good and open so that it still breathes, nothing is, you know, contracted so gases can build up. But, you know, I would put something with a roof, and something that shades it on the south side. It could even be something temporary. Some shade cloth would even work. But, you know, I might build a little lean-to with a little metal roofing on the side, on the top, and then maybe some, well, even tin all the way around. But that's just my suggestion. I would just say get it out of the direct sunlight. Just, you know, honestly, all the reading I've done, it doesn't seem to be too big of a concern, but they do not recommend getting it above 120 degrees. So, yes, get it in the shade if you can. Okay, this one comes from Ken over on Float, and he wanted to know what the benefits of going with a flat 4x8 panel of styrofoam insulation on the exterior of a house is over choosing vinyl siding with the insulation built into the back of it. And this question came from the fact that he's probably been watching me on social media and been seeing that I'm residing my house. And I chose to go with 4x8 sheets of 3 quarter inch styrofoam with a foil backer on it, and I've been covering the entire house with it. Now, there's also a product out there. You can buy vinyl siding with a thin layer of foam attached to the back of it. Now, there's a few reasons I went with 4x8 styrofoam on the exterior of the house. But the main one is that I have old wood clapboard on there, and it makes for a really uneven nailing surface to put vinyl siding over top of. So when you take 4x8 sheets of foam and put it over the entire part of the house, it gives you a nice, level, flat surface to attach the vinyl siding to. Also, less thermal breaks that way. When you have four by eight sheets and you tape all the edges, you basically have no areas for air to get into. Vinyl works the same way, but you've got a whole bunch of basically pieces of foam put together when you're snapping insulation together. And the other one was cost. The vinyl siding with the insulation on the back, at least in my area, is prohibitively expensive compared to going with um, four by eight sheets of insulated styrofoam and putting it up. And honestly, 
it really didn't take that much longer. But what the main reason for me was getting a nice flat work surface over top of the existing clapboard without having to remove the clapboard. And it added a nice insulation to the house so that I get a better R value and hopefully it heats and cools better without needing to, you know, disturb the interior of the house. So I hope that helps. I hope that answers the question and a little bit behind my thought process as to why I would choose four by eight styrofoam over the pre-insulated vinyl siding. Okay, next question comes from Dan, and he wants to know how I know how much to charge for hauling junk. He'd had an experience recently where he underpriced the job really badly and was disappointed and wanted to know how I work out my pricing structure. Well, first off, Dan, I want to let you know, I just recently did a moving job for somebody that I massively underpriced, and it was disappointing, but I did it anyway. So for me, locally... Uh, if, if it's just a half ton load that I can load myself, I charge 75. And if I, if it's a truck and trailer load, I charge 125. The landfill is only about five miles out of town. So normally I can do a dump run in about an hour. Now, of course, I just wanted to let you know where my prices were so that you have an idea. Prices will vary, whatever your market will dictate. I started a lot lower than that, worked my way up. Remember, a couple of things. You need to always think about the dump fees. So any fees above and beyond that, I charge back to the customer. In my area, I'm lucky. I can just put it on their P.O. box. And so I ask the customer for their P.O. box. And then the landfill bills them if they go over their limit for the year. But if there's special environmental fees or if you're paying by the ton, you need to figure out a way to make sure the customer knows, hey, I have a flat rate plus whatever the dump fees are. Or if you want to be a little more creative, Make sure that you know what the maximum the dump fees are going to be for you and build that into your cost so there's no surprises for the customer. But the biggest thing is finding a price that pays for your time, that makes money, because one of the biggest things about dump runs is it is hard on vehicles. You're beating and pounding, you're always putting, I'm always overloading things and strapping things down and scraping and dinging up my truck. So you always got to figure out there's that. You have to figure in your liability insurance all of that. But the biggest thing is, you know, start a price. And if, if people are happy with the price, slide your price up a little bit. And if you're starting to get people balking at the price a little bit once in a while, you've probably found that happy medium. You know, Jack always says you should be a little uncomfortable with your pricing. And that's the case. I'm even thinking about sliding my prices up just a little bit because they seem to be working really well for me at the moment. But basically you got to figure in the cost of getting rid of it, the time that it's going to take for you and any hidden fees. Get all of that figured in and then find a price you're comfortable with that the market will hold for you. Okay, guys, that's it for me. Thanks again for giving me a chance to answer all these questions. Keep sending them in. Send them to Jack. And uh, anything you need to know about uh, landscaping, entrepreneurship, and, of course, tools. And if you want to drop by the YouTube channel and check us out on Sunday nights, we have Talking Tools live stream every Sunday night, 8 o'clock Mountain Time, where we interact as a community, and I normally have a theme where I do a Q&A or a year later review, and I'm going to start getting some other experts in so we can have a chat and just talk and learn from one another. So I hope you drop by, guys. Anyway, thanks a lot, and as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Next up, like I said in the intro segment, we haven't heard from expert council member Sean Mills for a while. We do need some questions for Sean. Remember, Sean is a professional engineer working specifically in the solar industry. He has a ton of experience with electrical power systems uh, of just about all varieties, specifically uh, backup and uh, alternative and, and, and uh, things like solar, etc. 
So he's a huge resource. Remember to ask a question of Sean Mills or any member of the expert council. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. Send your question to me. Make your question a single-sentence question. Hit return a couple times. Give me all the details you want. But make the question straight up front so we know exactly what you're asking, and I'll get it to the appropriate council member. If you want to uh, to meet the expert council, you go to the survivalpodcast.com, go to About. A pop-up will give you the option for Meet the Expert Council. You see all the council members and what they can help you with. Uh, with that, Sean Mills now is going to give us an update on the solar industry itself. Hey, TSP. It's Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com. I do not have a question to answer today, but I did want to do a segment kind of on the status of the solar industry. Uh, we're nearing the start of the fourth quarter, 2021. And I've have, I've been seeing some comments about you know people asking what's going on with supply chain, what's going on with project pricing and things like that. So uh, I'll just kind of run through and let you guys know you know what I'm seeing right now. So first of all, I got to mention uh, as a country, the United States just surpassed three million solar installations. If you were at Jack's workshop last fall, you heard me talk about how it took 40 years to get to the first, to the one millionth installation in the United States. It only took three years to go from one million to two million, and it's only taken two years now to go from two million to three million installations in the U.S. So obviously the pace of solar photovoltaic installations is going to continue to grow rapidly. I uh, also mentioned that Jax, at this point, we didn't know who the next president was going to be, uh, but did mention that if Biden got in with his Build Back Better plan, that was definitely going to create some tailwinds for the solar industry as well as for the in wind industry. Um, we did see in December with the coronavirus bill that was passed December at the end of last year that the uh, investment tax credit was extended at the higher rate, it was supposed to go down to 20%. It was extended at the higher rate for another three years. And I fully expect that to go back to 30% um, for the foreseeable future once the infrastructure bill, and I'm not sure if it's going to be the first or second one, uh, but once that goes through, I think you'll probably see the tax credit go back up to 30%. Um, you know, I think there's also going to be some some significant money poured into R&D and specifically targeting storage. So obviously, the better the storage is, the more efficient uh, the photovoltaic generation is. Now, across the industry, solar installation cost has gone up this year, about 6% so far for a utility-scale system. So those are the big fields that you see full of panels. And closer to 10% for a rooftop system. But I think most, if not all, of that cost increase are in installation labor costs, connection fees, and permitting. Uh, specifically permitting. I've, I've heard some kind of horror stories about the cost of permits and what they've done over the last 12 to 24 months. Um, I have seen a slight uptick in component prices, uh, but not any sort of uh, supply issues. And I think that those slight upticks are kind of, hey, let's see if we can get a little bit more for these things. And my guess is that if you got on the phone with any of these suppliers, you could probably negotiate those prices down. 
you've seen some headlines about polysilicon prices going up, which obviously is the main component in a solar panel. That being said, solar panel or solar cell manufacturing is at all-time highs, uh, and I'm not seeing a jump in panel prices. The steel increases is probably going to have an impact on roof mount systems, but that might be, you know, to use uh, Powell's term, transitory. Uh, there are definitely some transportation headwinds, and as the stock of supplies in the U.S. is used without the bottlenecks, bottlenecks in the Pacific ports being cleared up, you could start to see some supply-related cost increases. I think if that happens, it's going to lead to a reduction in demand due to some permitted mega projects just getting pushed back, and that's going to quote-unquote flatten the curve. So I think by the time you start seeing actual supply issues related to millions of dollars worth of cargo sitting in the ocean off the coast of uh, California, uh, I think that you're going to see a switch in the scheduling of the demand actually coming online, which for the rooftop solar consumer uh, is going to mean probably nothing. You're probably not going to see cost increase. And my guess is going to be that if you, if you're able to do the labor yourself, or at least a good portion of it, you can still put a system in today as cheaply as you could in 19 or 20. And my guess is for the next few years, I do think that you're going to start seeing that, like I said earlier, that R and D money start to get poured into, um, storage. And when I say R and D money, I mean, basically the government's going to pay extra to get some of these systems online so that producers create commercially available systems, and that's going to result in the cost of storage going down. Uh, but I think they're probably going to strategically phase that type of thing in mid to late next year. So just to give an example, let's just say the $3.5 infrastructure bill gets passed with all of the, the green wish list items that are in there. You've got to create committees and budgets and allocate things and identify how to how a, a, a company is going to get approved to receive money and how projects are going to be procured and everything else. So what I'm saying is even if they pass the bill at the end of this year, you're probably looking at mid to late next year before any of that money really starts flowing, which means you're not going to see any benefits of that till 2023, 2024. So all that being said, I don't think there's any reason to not put a system in if you're ready, and I don't think that there's any reason to rush a system if you're not exactly sure what you want yet. I think that you should put the system in if you're ready and you know what you want, and I think you should wait and figure it out if you don't know yet. So those are my two cents. Uh, I'm out of questions. If you guys want to send questions in about solar, living off the grid, rainwater catchment, any of that type of thing, get them in the jack and I'll get them answered. Thanks. And like I said, the expert council's been doing a bang-on job lately of uh, getting straight to the point and answering these questions and being able to put multiple questions into a single response to give us a ton of variety. John Pugliano uh, anchors the council today and continues that trend with a lightning round on several financial questions and he even fits in a ham radio question at the end. John, take it away. Hello, TSP. I have a lightning round of financial questions, and if I have time, I'm even going to work in a ham radio question. 
Those far specific questions, Jeff from New Jersey is asking about the stability of pension funds and whether he should keep his money in his pension fund or you know take a lump sum withdrawal when he's eligible to take that money out. Jeff, I can't give you specific recommendations for you, but let me give you an overview of my own personal opinion about pensions and really about insurance annuities in general because that's in effect what what a pension is. Now, if you have a federal government pension, you know, something from retiring in the military or from a federal agency, those pension plans are the safest on the face of the earth because the federal government can always print money. It's extremely unlikely that those pensions will ever default. Now, inflation's another story and it doesn't mean that the money that they provide will be worth anything. But you don't have to worry about the federal government defaulting on things like federal pensions and social security payments because they, they own the printing presses. They'll always print the money. The problem with pension funds is at levels below the federal government. So that's state, municipal, and of course, private company funds. Those type of institutions cannot print their own money. And so the only way they can continue to fund those pensions is through a combination of investments and transfer payments made from current working employees. The liquidity problem that many pensions have is that either they're underfunded or because we're in such a low interest rate environment, it's been very difficult for pension companies to find lower risk investments that pay the 6 to 8% returns that they need to fund long-term payouts. And then there's also the demographic issue where you have potentially in a lot of industries where there are many more retired workers than there are younger full-time employees where there's a transfer payment from those younger employees to the older employees. And so all those factors add up to potential liquidity and instability issues with non-federal government pensions. So for me personally, if I had the opportunity to get a lump sum payment, well, that's exactly what I'd do. I'd take the lump sum payment and I'd roll it over without any tax consequences into an IRA. And I think that if you're willing to do that and learn to invest on your own or pay someone to invest for you, then it's very likely that you'll be able to outperform the guaranteed payments that you're going to receive from the pension. Because remember, if you have a pension that doesn't offer survivor benefits, that means that when you die, there are no beneficiaries that have claim to any future monies. And so in that case, you're not building up any intergenerational wealth. And the pension companies are betting on the fact that you're not going to live beyond the age of 80 so that they can keep any residual principle that you have left in your fund. Now, our next question comes from Ben, and his question is how to minimize capital gains on restricted stock options that he has from his employer. Now, I'm no tax expert, but my understanding of how RSUs work is that once you're vested, that initial amount is taxed for that tax year as ordinary income, and you just think of it as getting a cash bonus. And if you sell those shares at that point, you just pay the ordinary income tax and that's it. But if you decide to hold those shares after they're vested, then your cost basis becomes whatever the value of those shares were on the day they were granted to you, and regular short or long-term capital gain rates apply depending upon if you hold it more or less than one year. I don't know of any tax strategies that will avoid those taxes, whether they be the ordinary income or the shorter long-term capital gains. 
And really the same thing applies for any stock trading that's done in a taxable account. If you hold the position for less than one year and one day, then you're going to pay a tax rate that's equivalent to your ordinary income. If you hold on to those positions for longer than a year and a day, then they're taxed at the lower long-term tax rate, which for most people is about 15%. And other than just harvesting losses against gains, which really isn't a tax strategy in my opinion because you know, you're robbing from Peter to pay Paul, so you're just offsetting losses and gains, and so it's, it's really not a tax deduction. But the only tax avoidance strategy that I know of long-term is to hold the positions forever and never sell them. And then that way, your beneficiaries inherit those stocks at the cost basis on the day of your death. This is a similar strategy that you hear Jack talk about with long-term hodling of Bitcoin, where you never spend it, you just own it forever and then borrow against it. In the case of a stock portfolio, you wouldn't borrow against it, but you'd own dividend-paying stocks, and then you'd use the dividends to pay for your living expenses, and then when you die, the money transfers uh, tax-free from a capital gain standpoint to your beneficiaries. Now, Congress is trying to change those laws, so we'll see how they hold up in the future, but it is what it is, and just think of it as extortion money, and it's a cost of doing business. I don't like paying taxes any more than anybody else, but when it comes to things like capital gains taxes, I'd rather get to keep 75 or 80% of my earnings than be able to keep 100% of nothing if I don't invest my money. Now, our next question comes from Marty. His daughter is studying to be a nurse. She has enough money in her 529 college program to pay for the tuition, but Marty's wondering if she should take low-interest student loans and then because she's in nursing programs, there are a lot of hospitals that'll have loan forgiveness, uh, you know, once his daughter becomes a nurse and she's working for that hospital, you know, over a period of a few years, they'll pay all those loans back. And he's wondering if he should have her take out those loans or not. And, and Marty, again, I can't give you specific advice, but in my opinion, if it was my daughter, I would most likely have her take out the student loans if they were very low interest or, you know, no interest type payments. Because I do think that in her career field, the ability to get those loans forgiven is, is really likely. Marty, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of combining 529 money and student loan money, but I know people that have used both. Because receiving a student loan, particularly if it's a private loan, is much different than receiving financial assistance. So theoretically, it would be possible to use the 529 money to pay for the tuition, so that way you don't have any fees that you incur by not using that money for education purposes. And then the private student loan money, since it's a loan and not income, could still be used by her to do whatever she wants with it. Think through that, and as always, talk to a tax expert to make sure that you're doing things right. And then finally, we have a question about ham radio from James. James says that he's bought his Beofang radio, he's got it all programmed, he's able to ping the local repeater, but he's not really hearing much communication traffic, and he's wondering what he should do from here to you know, do more with amateur radio. Well, James, I'm running out of time, but really quickly, if you want to be more active in ham radio or amateur radio, think of where you are right now as just one little entry point into a service and a hobby that literally has thousands of things that you can do. Since you have local repeaters, that means in your area, you probably have some kind of a emergency radio response team and some type of amateur radio group that's responsible for those repeaters. 
They probably have monthly or quarterly meetings. Attend those meetings. Start to meet with other operators. That'll give you an idea of what's going on locally. Getting your technician license and learning to use that radio is just one small facet. And from there, you really just need to determine what your goals and objectives are as to where you want to go and in what directions. I mean, there are literally thousands and thousands of different things that you can do with amateur radio at the core. So do you want to learn how to build radios? Do you want to build antennas? Do you want to participate in contesting or talking to people in distant lands? Or do you want to be part of emergency radio communications and join a local CERT group or Red Cross or Aries? I mean, there are just so many facets that you can take this, figure out kind of what your inclination is, what skills you want to develop, and then I can almost guarantee you there's some type of ham radio auxiliary group or operators that will be happy to teach you more about what they do and help you develop those skills and abilities. A good place to get information is Facebook. If you go to Facebook and under the search function, just simply put in ham radio and then look under the category of groups and scroll down through that list and you'll see all types of public and private groups that are that are dealing with some specific area of ham radio. And then also don't forget that over at Telegram, TSP has a specific ham radio group there that you can join. So, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. Good stuff there. Um, I wanted to end again with this question, or not this question, this quote, by Finley Peter Doon, who's an American journalist. And I, I looked at this, que- this quote, and I immediately got the point that Doon was making, but I also took it a totally different way, or maybe not a totally different way, but maybe expanded on it a bit. Finley Peter Doon wrote, The past always looks better than it was. It's only pleasant because it isn't here. In other words, a lot of the things that we look back with nostalgia on, especially stuff that we weren't here for, right? if we look back like the heyday of Americana, be the 50s and 60s in the United States, and I heard a lot of things about the 50s and 60s that we don't have today that uh, we're probably glad we don't. There's a lot of things about the 50s and 60s that they didn't have that we're probably glad we have. And that's kind of what Finley's talking about. I want you to think about this. In the 1950s and 60s, um, even in a time when we weren't at war, before Vietnam really ramped up and, and, and you know before and after the Korean conflict, you could get drafted. You could get drafted just because we needed a military force of a certain size. So no war. Off doing your own thing, get drafted. Doesn't happen today. So that's kind of what he's talking about there. Now, I will say this I'm not going to talk about it this week, but I think we have a real potential to see the return of the draft because the drawdown in forces because of this bullshit with COVID, if they actually go through with it, is going to necessitate it. Think about that. That could be coming back. So, but that's what Dune was talking about that, like, there's a lot of things in the past that we look at that seem like they were so great. You know, but having a minimum wage of a dollar twenty-five and, and, and grown-ass men actually making it for full-time jobs, maybe one as good as you think it was. You could certainly have lived on a dollar twenty-five an hour in 1950. You could. You didn't live as good as you might think you did, though. I mean, uh, you would probably live better in 1950 on a dollar twenty-five an hour than you would live on, you know, what is it, seven fifteen or seven seventy-five or even eight bucks today. But not that much better. Not my that no, no podcasting. Think of how how convenient modern vehicles are. Look at all the things that we have today, and man, that's what Dune was talking about. But there's a much more insidious thing here. 
when it comes to looking at the past as being better than the present. No matter how shitty the present is. And no matter how good the past was. The past is done. It's gone. It's expired. It doesn't exist anymore. It already happened. You can't do anything with it. You can't change anything with it. You can't obtain anything with it. The only way the past aids you is if you took wide, wise actions in the past that are still aiding you and uh, feeding you and enriching you in the present. That's the only way the past matters. If you invested your money well in the past and you're living well today because you did so, okay, the past matters, but it doesn't really. It's just why the present's good. There's a point in time that's always in front of you. That's always right here, right now. The present. And it is all you have. It doesn't matter if we were a better country 20 years ago or if we were a worse country 20 years ago. It doesn't matter if the opportunities to build a business were better 20 years ago than they are now. It doesn't matter because that time, much like money, has been spent. And it's gone and it's evaporated. And I said I wasn't going to kick your ass with the TikTok today because we're ending Q3. But I'm going to a little bit here because let me explain to you how opportunity works. The next one second of your life has opportunity, and it's gone, 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 and it's gone. Do you get it? Every second, tick, talk, gone, tick, talk, gone. You're either doing something with it, or you're not. You're educating yourself so that you can act as opportunities come, or you're not. You're building systems into your life that create self-sufficiency and self-reliance, or you're not. You're investing your money wisely, or you're spending it foolishly. Those are your choices. I, I, I think we really do live in an active, multi-universe environment. Okay, the the you know multi-dimensional space. Call it whatever you want to. The the, the, the the concept in physics that at each decision point there's a fractal and there's a there's a universe in a multi-world theory I think is what it's actually called in physics there's there's a, there's a world in which you made the other choice and so there's billions of permutations of possibilities but in the end each fractal is fractal is binary this or that. And you might say, well, there's times when I have three or four decisions. But in that process, you're making multiple individual decisions until you narrow it down to two. And then either I do this thing or I don't do this thing. Either I turn left or I turn right. It's, it's, it's a binary fractalization in our lives. And wherever those other possibilities lead, if the, that, if, if the physicists cutting-edge physicists are right, and those other worlds actually exist, it's absolutely meaningless to you. It's as meaningless as the past from which you came. The only thing you can do with the past is learn from it in how you act in the present and into the future. That's it. The past will always look better than it was. It's only pleasant because it isn't here. I think about my past sometimes and some of the really great times I had. And I think... 
boy, if I could go back, and then I really I catch myself, and I think, but you, but number one, you can't, and number two, look at your life. Would you risk it? Would you go back in time, even correcting the things now that you know were mistakes, and risk that every workday morning you wouldn't see your two grandkids come running out of the garage after your wife gets home? Would you risk that maybe you never met your wife? Would you risk that maybe you never started this podcast and touched the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in one way or another? Would you risk that? And whenever I ask myself that question, I say, no, I would not. And if you've made some bad decisions, some really bad decisions, and you haven't corrected course yet or got the correction completed yet, you might say, well, that's easy to say when you're pleased with where you are. But if I had some total knowledge of everything that was going to be in my life, and now I'm at a point in the past where my life sucked, would you go back and course correct then? And the answer would still be no. And again, it's an interesting thought experiment. It's like the multi-world theory. It's an interesting thought experiment, but it doesn't matter. All we have is now. And the real seductive, in a negative way, component of the past is to convince yourself that it was ever better than it is now. Because the past is what it was. The present and the future is what you make it. So if it's not good enough now, you have a choice to change it. Good or bad, the past is static. It's done. There is nothing else to be done. It is what it is, finito. The present is like clay. The past is like clay that was put in the kiln. It was hardened and glazed made into a fine piece of pottery or a crappy piece of pottery and then smashed into oblivion once it was completed. That's everything in the past. The future is the clay that you have yet to mold. And I think there's actually a comfort in the fact that all that we do will one day be gone. That we matter now for a time. And if we do things right, we can even leave a legacy But sooner or later, our legacy will fade. There's only going to be so many Da Vinci's and Shakespeare's and Socrates and, you know, Plato's whose names stand across centuries or millennia. And even those names will fade. And even the ones that don't, someday our sun will become red and angry and start to expand and engulf this planet into a cinder. That's the eventuality. So we need to live now. Seduced not by the seductive nature of the nostalgia of the past or put to sleep by the fact that somebody else will fix our problems for us. Science will make us live to be 200. The government will actually fix this shit, etc. We can't be seduced by the past or the future. Everything is in the present. Everything is in the now. There was a book that I read a very long time ago, and it was called ET 101. Extraterrestrials 101. The author was a pen name, obviously. It was something like Zoev Jaho was the, was the author's name. I'm sure the book's long out of print. Little, little, uh, kind of short, easy to read book. And it was written 
to anybody that would read it with the concept of you are an extraterrestrial. You came here from somewhere else, and you left without your guidebook. So Mission Control put the guidebook together, and they sent it to you. I'm going to see if I can find this book, if it still exists, right? And this is coming from the spiritual concept, that we all enter this plane from some other plane. Whether you think your soul sent by God or a soul that's chosen by itself to incarnate here or whatever, one way or another, that that's like a spiritual constant. That there's this belief that we we do come from somewhere else and then we exist here and then we go somewhere else. And that's that's where this book was coming from. It had a whole chapter, pretty short, on now, but it was written something to the effect of now is all that there is, and now is always becoming now, more now, and nothing matters other than the now. It was a really cool little book. I'm going to try to find it for you. But that's what this that's what this quote from fin- Finley Peter Doon, I'm sure it's not the way he meant it. It's what it means to me. Now is the only thing that there truly is. And now is always becoming more now. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed today's show. Great uh, lineup from the Expert Council, as always. Please try to tune in to uh, Outback with Jack in the live stream tomorrow if you can. If you can't, you'll be able to catch the podcast. It should be out on the uh, podcast distribution services by 9.30, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. So Fridays will remain uh, an early you know, early in the day release of the podcast. With that, let me remind you, if you'd like to show in the work that we do, you can always help support us just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there before you shop online, no matter what you buy, you will help us out. Today's item of the day, I'm bringing them around again because they're on sale again, the Barina LED Grow Lights and Six Packs. They are really marked down today. I mean, really a significant markdown. The six-footers for a six-pack of six-foot lights are marked down 30 bucks. That's 27% off. The two-footers are marked down $20. That's 29% off. So a little bit under 30% off for both of them. That's a good deal. Um, if you already have your fixed up on grow lights, that's fine. Don't worry about it. If you're going to be building a seed starting system, an indoor hydro system, anything like that soon, I'd get them while they can. And I'm going to, this will make more sense tomorrow when I talk about what I think is going to happen with supply chain issues. I think the doomsday prophecies are a little bit overstretched, but they're not completely wrong either. Okay. Um, I think we're going to have, and I'll, again, I'll talk about this in a segment tomorrow on Outback with Jack, but I think we're going to have, the way I'm going to describe it is an ebb and flow of supplies. When I'll save it till tomorrow, but I think that that's what you're seeing with some of these things that like, how is everything in short supply? And then this thing's on sale. This is the ebb, or this is the flow, and then they ebb. And you don't know when they're going to ebb, and you don't know when they're going to flow. And so if you, if you can buy something now, first of all, and you can get it, that's good. If you can get it and pay less, that's better. If it won't go bad, it won't expire, it's not going to wear out, like it's not a loaf of bread, then it makes sense if you can get it now for less and you know you're going to need it in the next three, six months, do it now because when you get ready to do your project, it might not be there. These lights for the price are amazing. A few years ago, a single light would have cost you, the exact same light would have cost you what the six-packs cost today. That's how good they are. And Hundreds of people in this audience have been using these lights to do indoor growing, seed starting, etc., and I've never had a complaint about them yet. 
remember, you can you can always find the item of the day by going to tspaz.com. You can see the most current item of the day reviews. You can see everything I've reviewed in alphabetical order by category, and you can just start your shopping there, see the deals of the day on Amazon and everything like that. No matter what you buy, even if I didn't review it, as long as you start there, you help support us and the work that we do. Um, if you need lights, get them. And that, that's my advice on everything right now. If it will last and not go bad on you, you know you're going to use it eventually, and it's on sale right now. I would get it because it's in a flow in the ebb and flow cycle. All right, uh, one more time. Remember, Omar Cotter, Guide Service, free trip. Just subscribe to his YouTube channel. That's all you got to do. Link in today's show notes. And with that, let's wrap up with our song of the day. Uh, remember, we're doing songs off my Pandora playlists uh, for a few weeks anyway. Um, this week, the artist this is based on is generally thought of as an artist But his name is really used as part of the name of a band. Really big in the 70s and 80s. So I gave a lot of clues on this one. The songs we had already this week were Slide by the Goo Goo Dolls and then All for You by Sister Hazel Yesterday. Today's song is Just What I Needed by The Cars, released, I believe, in 1978. So try to guess who is this person that I based this Pandora channel on that's resulted in these musics. And remember, the thing you know is it's not the Cars, it's not Sister Hazel, and it's not Goo Goo Dolls, because I won't play a song that is by uh, the group, or if it's a group, if there's a solo song by a guy that was in that group, I won't do it either. That way, it'll, it'll be at least you can rule out some people, right? So, again, Slide by the Goo Goo Dolls, All for You by Sister Hazel, And Just What I Needed by The Cars. Anyway, Just What I Needed is, I've always loved this song. I love the sound of it. I love the tempo of it. Uh, I like The Cars a lot. Someday maybe I'll do a Cars Week or something for you. Um, but can you guess? Tomorrow on Outback with Jack, I'll give you the name of who it was. And in the show notes, you'll be able to clone my Pandora channel if you want to. And I'm thinking about letting people submit their Pandora channel and four songs, because most weeks will be four, sometime in the future, but probably not till like after the workshop, because the next couple, uh, next like six weeks are going to be crazy for me. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.